0: I don't think we'll ever get to a point where uh, we live without power uh, outages. So what we need to make sure is that it isn't just about keeping the lights on all the time, but that we're building resilience into the community as well. I think that's what's really important about the federal funding is that some of the money will go to utilities and some of the money will go to local communities who can address their needs and do things like building microgrids for hospitals or building microgrids for schools.
1: Hello everyone, this is Barbara Humpton, CEO of Siemens USA, and thanks for listening to the Optimistic Outlook. I'm recording this early in 2023, but today I'm actually thinking about the early days of the century, a moment in the year 2000. Not Y2K, which our younger listeners might not even know about, but a moment when the National Academy of Engineering brought together members to produce a list of the top 20 engineering achievements of the 20th century. And, you know, it's fascinating to see what they put on the list. It's pretty impressive, to say the least. Things like spacecraft, the automobile, highways, computers, the Internet, the telephone, all of these inventions and innovations that we can't imagine living without today. But you know what was at the very top of the list? The power grid. And as you think about it, it makes sense, right? Because electrification, our nation's power grid, is what enables everything else on that list. The question now is what do we need the grid to enable in this century? And is our grid as it's currently designed up for the job? We're gonna explore this today with Karen Wayland. She's the CEO of Gridwise Alliance. They're an organization serving the electricity industry with a vision to transform the US power grid. Take a listen. Karen Wayland, welcome to the podcast and thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thanks Barbara, I'm excited to be here with you.
1: Karen, with the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act, we really now have significant government resources, in addition to our private sector investment, focused on bringing the electric grid into the future. And we'll get into that. But first, help us understand the current state of the grid. We know that the grid is under a lot of stress, particularly as climate change intensifies, as more renewables come online, and as we also see some progress incorporating new technology What did we accomplish in the last decade and how would you describe the state of the grid today? Well,
0: we we have the technologies to have a modern grid that prov- provides the functions that allow it to be the platform for decarbonization, to be more reliable, resilient, um, and affordable. The issue is that the deployment of those technologies is happening in a patchwork fashion around the country. So there are some utilities that have been able to make investments in all these innovative technologies and have very modern systems. And then there are other um, utilities where they may not even have the most basic um, advanced technologies like an advanced meter um, for the customers. So the, we're hoping that this federal funding allows us to address this inequity in grid modernization across the country so that, so that um, all customers and all consumers uh, are connected to a modern grid and get those benefits.
1: Tell me a little bit, Karen, about the role of Gridwise Alliance in this transformative time.
0: Uh, Well, the Gridwise Alliance developed a set of recommendations for the infrastructure um, package doing a a whole series of of, uh, stakeholder engagements. And um, we were very happy that that, uh, most of our recommendations ended up in the infrastructure bill with respect to the grid programs. So our number one priority in the coming years is to make sure that that money, um, not just at the Department of Energy, but at the Department of Transportation and the Commerce Department and and elsewhere, really goes to the places that need it most, that we have a very effective implementation, and that we um, are highlighting the kinds of technologies that need to be deployed with this money so that um, everywhere uh, consumers can experience the benefits of a modern grid.
1: So let's start talking about then what's possible over this next decade. You know, Karen, we've been thinking a lot at Siemens about how the power grid can be not just our economic backbone, but a powerful tool to decarbonize society. Our our view for the future is basically, let's electrify as much as possible, especially mobility. We're really bullish on the concept of a national EV charging network. And in fact, Last year, we committed ourselves to manufacturing more than a million EV chargers in the U.S. in a four-year period, and we just recently announced that we're locating a second manufacturing hub for EV charging operations in Carrollton, Texas. But when we think about this electric future, we know that in many ways, the market can only grow as fast as our grid enables it to. And I have a few questions on the topic, but let's start with this one. What kind of stress does scaling EV infrastructure potentially add to the grid?
0: Well, there are some engineering issues where you're actually dealing with um, increased load um, based on the demand of of um, electrifying transportation and also um, you know, potentially a system that that uh, wasn't designed for the kind of intermittency of that load. Um, but the flip side of that is that that load and those batteries actually provide uh, you know a possibility of increasing the capacity of the grid if we have the control systems and the hardware to take advantage of that. And what I see as the biggest stress is not necessarily that we're going to get there with the technologies that allow us to manage this exciting development of transportation electrification. But there's a mismatch in timescales. So today, if you're a consumer, you can go out to, um, you know, the car dealer and buy an electric vehicle, and you don't have to ask permission from anybody to do that. Um, but if you are say a fleet, and you'd like to electrify your fleet, you may um, go to your utility and find out that well, you can purchase the vehicles and and the charging infrastructure, it may take the utility 18 months to two years to actually do the upgrades on the grid side to enable that fleet electrification. And so I think that we we have to be really careful about um, finding ways to um, smooth out that difference in timing between what the consumer can do and what the utility um, is physically able to do and and potentially um, also be aware that sometimes those costs are not necessarily born just by the consumer that is asking for the changes on the grid.
1: Well, that's a good point. And in fact, I'm curious as we look to apply grant funding, say that's coming from these federal sources and, and even as company ma- companies make investments, what do you think are the most urgent priorities for grid modernization in this transition to electric fleets? You mentioned um, you know, needing to be consistent across the country. Uh, but But are you seeing places where things are moving along well that might serve as a, a model for others?
0: Well, we actually I have a prop. We actually did a report on the near term grid investments for integrating electric vehicle um, charging infrastructure, and we did that with a, a, um, a number of grid wise utility members and our and some of the um, grid equipment manufacturers really thinking about. Um, what are the kinds of investments that we're going to need to make on the grid in order to to help with this transition to electric vehicles? And there's a, there's a series of them. First, we need an advanced meter at the customer interface so that um, so that there can be two way flows, not just of of um, power back and forth, but also information. So control systems back and forth. Um, we need um, potentially dynamic line rating in order to increase the capacity of the um, of the grid and to allow increased visibility for how that power is moving around the, um, the, the system. We will need distributed energy resource management software uh, systems which will um, monitor and control those distributed energy resources like electric vehicles. Um, we'll need uh, more of a process thing which are interoperability standards so that um, people who are driving around um, can use every charger that they find and that the utility can interface with every charger that that, um, a uh, consumer would like to install on the grid. And then finally, we expect that in order for this to be a, a you know um, a truly integrated grid where vehicles can provide services to the grid and vice versa, that we're going to need a modern communication network based on uh, broadband, whether that's wireless or fiber, in order to um, enable all the data to flow across the system to give grid operators the flexibility and also to give the consumers the um, information that they need in order to figure out how and when and where to charge.
1: Yeah, so it sounds like it's not just a hardware problem, right? We've got to get the right equipment out there to be able to support these changes on the grid. But there are also some software changes that need to be made. And man, you know, what I'm hearing as we have conversations with our cloud providers is that it's an incredible amount of data that's now flowing in the automotive sector. So, you know, in addition to power and comms, we've got to have data storage and, and all of those things, all of those technologies are absolutely critical to this, this decarbonized future that we are looking forward to. Now, we recently did a podcast episode focused on our partnership with the utility ComEd in Chicago, where our good friend Gil Quinones has recently stepped in as the CEO. And and what we've done with ComEd, even before Gil's arrival, was we've been working together on a microgrid model managed by software that can help communities speed up the transition to renewables and have the capability to maintain power at all times, even when the utility grid experiences outages. Help us understand the role that utilities play in preparing the grid for EV charging and increasing that share of renewables online.
0: Well, first of all, let's give a shout out to Gil Quinones, who is a rock star in, in the utility world and truly a visionary. And when you think about... Um, his understanding of the importance of data and uh, in managing a utility and the grid itself, uh, he's been at the forefront of the digitalization of, of the grid. So kudos to to Gil, who has been our uh, board chair at Gridwise for the last year, two years, and is stepping down um, to to focus fully on ComEd. So it's been a pleasure to work with Gil. But to to answer your question about the role of the utility. In preparing for um, EVs, there there are utilities do a significant amount of long-term planning for the investments in how to make sure that the grid operates reliably. So as consumers are thinking about uh, transportation electrification, buying new electric vehicles, as uh, policymakers are thinking about those goals of transportation electrification, um, and then also um, bringing on more renewables, uh, there has to be a coordination of planning across both the policy sphere and the utility planning uh, process, because um, there are a lot of things that are outside the utilities control. For example, how many um, electric vehicles are going to be in their service territory. So in addition to uh, that. The you know the kinds of engineering that they'll have to do and the and the technology deployment there's going to have to be coordinated forecasting and planning um, both on the policy side and on the utility side to make sure that the investments are made so that the utility grid is a platform for decarbonization.
1: Yeah, we've seen examples of this as we've worked across the country, uh, uh, states, or very large uh, cities. Actually, have put together teams that include, um, you know, all of the parties that are critical to making this transition go smoothly, and, and, and that's important. But uh, let's get back to the question of resources. What resources do you see that are available through the bipartisan infrastructure law to prepare the grid for the EV charging, and and how is this going to help us build out our national network faster?
0: Right. Well, there's a Billions of dollars in the infrastructure bill for um, for uh, modernizing the grid, and it's and it's focused on different parts of the grid, uh, functions of the grid. So there's um, over seven billion dollars for EV charging infrastructure over at the Department of Transportation, and then over at the Department of Energy, there is somewhere on the order of, depending on how you look at it, um, eleven to fifteen billion dollars. For um, grid investments to enhance resilience and increase system flexibility, and what we have been um, very focused on is is making sure that there's coordination between the Department of Transportation with its um, charging infrastructure money and the Department of Energy, which has the resources to make investments in the grid. And there is in the infrastructure bill a um, joint. DOE, DOT task force on transportation electrification, specifically for that coordination. And I will note that um, we've talked about a modern communication network that's critical for for, uh, helping to move through the stage of electrification. And there's money in the Department of Commerce for um, utility communication networks. So it's a place where Utilities don't necessarily look to resources. You know, the, the, This is a new program for middle mile broadband, but it is a significant amount of money that is available for um, utilities to make investments in the communication networks that are gonna be essential for transportation electrification.
1: That's excellent to know. And I know Gridwise Alliance will be helpful in pointing people to the resources that, that they are gonna so desperately need. But let's switch gears, switch channels maybe for a minute and think about resilience oh man, there have been a number of big events, whether it's floods, winter storms, hurricanes, wildfires, you name it. And it, what it's shown us is the connection between reliable power and our own health and safety, as well as our you know, economic security. So we know that power outages are happening much more frequently than they did a decade ago. And in the bipartisan infrastructure law, there's a program addressing this, it's called the Grid Resilience and Innovation Partnerships Program or GRIP Program. And I understand that the Department of Energy is now accepting applications for project funding. Who can apply for it? And what do you think we can achieve by leveraging the grid funding to its full potential?
0: Well, there are actually uh, four different programs within uh, within the GRIP program, uh, a lot of money for resilience, and then I mentioned the Smart Grid Investment Grants for flexibility as well. And, um, and it depends on which pot of money, uh, who the eligible entity is. So utilities are eligible to apply for a significant amount of the money in the resilience um, side and also in grid flexibility. And then... Um, State, local, tribal, and other governments are um, eligible for uh, the six billion dollars that uh, is in this um, resilience innovation program. We do know that utilities are very interested and are, and many of them have the resources and um, to apply for the grants. There are some smaller utilities that we worry uh, may not have the resources to to pull together grant writers and and write those applications, and we also worry that. Um, some of the smaller government entities that could, um, that should be making resilience investments may be hampered in accessing that funding by, uh, you know, a, a lack of technological expertise or even the resources, the, the human resources to write those grants. So um, there is a lot of work at the Department of Energy to address this need for technical assistance. And there are some outside groups also that are, are gearing up to provide technical assistance. But I think... You know, making sure that this money goes to the right places to really strengthen resilience is one of our key focus
1: um, over the coming years. Well, I'm kind of curious about your view about what we can accomplish. Um, You know, we've been looking at this idea of using software systems for, you know, the microgrids. We've been looking at battery storage and, you know, new forms of power production. And, and we think all of that is delivering more reliable power at all times. What's your perspective? Do you see a future without power outages?
0: I think, it's, I think we can get to a point where we have significantly improved the reliability and resilience of the system. I don't think we'll ever get to a point where uh, we live without power uh, outages. People say we could get to that point, but nobody could afford the system at that point. So what we need to make sure is that it isn't just about keeping the lights on all the time, but that we're building resilience into the community as well, so that we are um, making sure that those people who may have health issues or who are, you know, don't have the resources to go to a hotel, or you know, that we're taking care of those people. That we have um, resilient centers, critical infrastructure, where we have the microgrids that can keep can can keep lights on when the overall power system may experience disruptions. But we have to think about resilience differently i think we have to think about you know resilience as a community responsibility not just the utility and i think that's what's really important about the federal funding is that some of the money will go to utilities and some of the money will go to local communities who can address their needs and do things like building microgrids for hospitals or building microgrids for schools or setting up a system where you can use electric school buses to charge, uh, you know, cooling stations in the summer. So there's some really, really exciting new, innovative um, applications of existing technologies, and also deployment of new technologies that gives me a lot of hope for,
1: uh, you know, our ability to meet the climate challenge. And this is a really important point. You know, we got to think about the objective, and the objective isn't necessarily to simply have constant flow of electricity, but to actually just be able to. Do the things that need to be done. As we now talk about outages in the bigger picture, you've got me thinking about a tribal community in Northern California, Blue Lake Rancheria. We helped them put in a microgrid, uh, wow, almost a decade ago now. And what we've seen, we love to stay in touch with them because over and over again, we've seen great stories of whether there's, you know, response to wildfires, whether it's, you know, heavy storms, even a recent earthquake where the grid has come down, but Blue Lake Rancheria has stayed up. And they've been able to serve as a power station to the surrounding communities, allowing people to come for loading up their batteries, et cetera, and and providing that continuity. So you've heard it from Karen, there is technology there to help us achieve our goals, but what's the right goal? Is the right goal a grid with zero outages or is the right goal a resilient grid that makes use of the resources available to us to assure we meet our most important objectives. One of the things I definitely wanna make sure we cover is this: is the people aspect of this. We're really excited about the potential for new careers as uh, the grid continues to transform. We've seen this already in our manufacturing investments, the ones I mentioned earlier, but another area we need to catch up in is just workforce development in digitalization and automation. There's a lot of technologies people worry or sort of coming for our jobs, but actually what's happening is that they're just changing our roles and maybe even creating new opportunities for it. We've seen a massive retirement wave of experienced workers Uh, manufacturing now has more than 800,000 open positions. What's the job outlook um, in the power sector? How are utilities looking at this and how is this new technology changing the skill requirements of the workforce?
0: Well, those are two great questions the first is you know are, are there workforce issues and i will tell you that when i've talked to some of our member utilities they say that's one of the the biggest challenges and actually Acquiring and then spending the money to do the grid modernization is uh, supply chain issues and workforce issues. So the the utility industry is certainly experiencing um, uh, retirements, aging, aging workforce, and then also a change in the skills required to operate the system. So so the those two pieces, the the. Um, the workforce that's leaving, uh, the general demand for technology expertise across sectors is is creating a lot of competition. And one of the things with the infrastructure bill is that there is forty two point five billion dollars over at the Commerce Department for broadband. And if you think about the utility business, and then you think about broadband, so expanding broadband access, the grid modernization and broadband are very linked. And, they're, and even if they're done separately, the workforce skills are very similar. And so with this large amount of money for broadband, uh, there may be some increased competition for, for qualified workers. So that that is a big fear for us in terms of you know, really accelerating the transition that, that the infrastructure money is designed to do. Uh, and so um, I was just on a call with a state energy director yesterday asking for um, resources to, and ideas for how they can develop the workforce training and, and um, development on the side, uh, you know, parallel to figuring out how they're going to spend the money for grid modernization. So it's on everybody's minds. Um, it and I think that the utility industry has had hard time attracting young people into into its workspace. But the changing nature of the utility business with with um, mo- the move to clean energy and this digital grid actually um, is likely more attractive to young people. So I'm hopeful that, uh, with the right programs, with the right apprenticeship programs, the right outreach to, at the high school level, to help people think through what they want to do in college or community colleges or, um, technology training that we will start to attract more people into the inf- into the energy infrastructure business
1: while we're on this topic let's talk a little bit at about diversity and, and inclusion at Siemens we want to tap into all the talent that exists across uh, across the workforce and, and we're really focused on attracting new talent from diverse labor pools into the work that we do. How diverse is the, uh, the the power sector when it comes to its workforce? And and are there similar challenges? Are there things that we can be working on across sectors to to help?
0: Well, as someone who has to regularly put on uh, panels, and I try really hard to make sure that those panels are not mantles, uh, it, the utility industry is is you know still dominated by um, by white men, but that's changing, and and I think something that that um, is going to help attract diversity is that that um, these jobs are good paying jobs. They are not minimum wage jobs, and with the right kinds of of um, outreach, uh, utilities can reach new. Um, Demographics to, to increase diversity, but also to to um, create some steadiness in that workforce because it is really important when you spend you know four years training alignment or or you know the same amount of time uh, with people in your grid operating rooms that you want to make sure that they stay with you so that you can you know continue the benefits of that investment over you know a long career so. Really, finding new um, new people to bring into the industry is going to be important for that that lasting um, workforce.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm I'm actually excited about you know having seen the um, the tools that are being used today. You know, you go into one of the tech centers, say at ComEd, and what you see looks like um, a space program. You know control panels everywhere and and people huddled around screens, you know, making decisions about, you know, the test results, et cetera. So I I actually do think that there are some kids who today are playing video games who are going to soon discover that, hey, they've got a great future in our power sector.
0: We just did a panel at our last Grid Connects conference in December on the anatomy of a utility pole, and we had a lineman there talking about how even um, the job of maintaining a utility pole and, and, in, you know, maintaining the wires is changing and becoming far more digital. And he even talked about, um, how they have, uh, earth movers that, um, have a control system that straps on and the, uh. Kids who've grown up playing video games are the best ones at doing this remote control of the, uh, of the new equipment that they have. And so it's, you know, drones and diggers and other things that, yes, that's playing with, um, with, with, um, video games actually can contribute to your career.
1: <laughs> all right, so all you caregivers and parents out there, let it be known: kids can play their video games guilt-free. Oh, <laughs> uh, Karen! So I'd like to end now with the question I love to close out with each episode. If we're able to apply the concepts we've been discussing and modernize the power grid, paint us a picture of how this is going to impact our future.
0: Well, my favorite example uh, is a very concrete one, and that's the the um, example of the Chattanooga utility EPB and with the recovery act funding you know in 2009 2010 they invested um 220 million dollars on upgrading their systems and and building out a smart grid capability so really a modern grid And as they were doing that, they pledged to all of their customers that they would be a one gigabyte city, that as they invested in their utility communication network, they would also be um, expanding access to broadband through that system. So what they have is an incredibly modern um, grid. But they've also been able to provide um, high-speed internet to uh, everybody in their territory. And they're now a 10-gigabyte city. And a recent study looked at the economic benefits of those in early investments. And over the last 10 years, um, the study estimates that there's been somewhere on the order of 8 to $9 billion of economic development as a result of that initial investment in the smart grid. So If you go to Chattanooga, it's a really exciting place where there's tech companies moving in, where there's new development downtown, and it's a really exciting example of what we can look to um, for the benefits of a modern grid. But we have to make sure it's happening for everybody and not just in certain places.
1: How exciting. With power and comms, everyone can join the digital economy and, frankly, people can choose to live where they want to live. Uh, if, if as long as they're in a business that can be done digitally. So it, this is an exciting time and we really appreciate having your insights. Karen Whelan, thanks so much for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation and I want to encourage you now to go to our show notes and learn more about everything we talked about in this episode. At Siemens, we're part of the effort to reinvent the grid to meet our needs in the 21st century, and we stand ready to support more customers and stakeholders. Thanks again for listening. Please follow us on social media and on your favorite podcasting platform. Thank you for tuning in.